passage comes from Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Paul tells them, Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. Would you pray with me? Father, we praise you and we worship you that you have done a work in our hearts. Thank you for this act of worship that we are able to offer up to you, and I pray simply that that would continue through the preaching of your word. Father, we want our hearts and our minds to be transformed by your word, and so we pray that you would work by the power of your Holy Spirit through Pastor Patrick to faithfully proclaim a message to us. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Church may be seated. You should pray for Ryan leading this trip as well. He didn't acknowledge that, but please do. Leading mission trips are fun to be sure, uh, but they are hard work. Make, make no doubt about it. There's a lot of effort, energy, and toil gone on behind the scenes. Uh, and I know God's going to be glorified by the team that goes, uh, so be in prayer for them. Uh, I know the kids are excited, although some of them who have never been on a missions trip, I'm assuming they think it's going to be a lot like summer camp. Oh, boy, it's not. It's not at all. It, there's certainly a lot of fun. There's a lot of memories uh, that are made and shared, but it requires a lot more of you. There is service. There's requirements. There's a giving of yourself, an emptying of yourself that is unlike any other on a short-term missions trip. One thing that I think is very unique on trips like that, though, if you've ever been on one, you've experienced right when you get off the plane and you're in a foreign land surrounded by people you don't know, you are immediately attached to your team. You're dependent upon them. You're interdependent. You know that to survive this and to make it through, I got to depend on others, and I also need to serve others. This idea of individualism or self-reliance, that dies quickly on a missions trip. Most everyone recognizes that that's going to take place when you're on those, but I want you to know that that exists today in this church. This is a full room, packed chairs. This is wonderful to see everyone in here, but that same attitude needs to apply to us. There's an interdependency that you and I must have and hold on to and recognize if we're going to endure this life together. As the body of Christ, that is a title and a metaphor given to us that we need to hold on to, but it's not a body full of individuals, a body full of people who are self-reliant. It's a body of people who are interdependent upon one another. The design of the church is that we've been gifted with gifts to bless and build up the church, and we can't do it individually. We must do it collectively. We're continuing our series this morning of We Are His Workmanship. Each week we've covered an essential either metaphor or idea that God gives us as part of our new identity in Him. So far we've, we've covered that we are His sheep, that we've been reconciled, that we are His assembly, that we're His co-laborers, we're His temple. Last week we looked at that we are His ambassadors. So God has given us a profound identity now that we are a new creation. Today continues our examination of what it means to be members of one another. It's a fun phrase. It kind of rolls off the tongue. Tongue, excuse me. We are members of one another. But that's one of those phrases, you say it enough, it just gets weirder and weirder. So let's ask this question. What does that mean to be members of one another? We are a unified body, interdependent on one another for the needs of life. We are a unified body, interdependent upon one another for the needs of life. Now that we are a new creation, been made in Christ's image, we are members of God's church. The reason why I had Ryan read Romans 12, 1 through 2 is this important segue in the book of Romans. 
And Paul wants them to transition and to make an understanding that they should no longer live in the way they used to. They need to be transformed. And that transformation takes place in their minds. And the very first application of that is how they relate to one another. How they view one another as a church. See, for most of us, when you hear this need, the needs of life, my first thought is it probably went to practical needs, such as food and shelter. Well, we don't necessarily rely on that for one another, although we do at certain times. More often than not, the reliance extends far beyond physical and practical needs to spiritual needs, emotional needs, relational needs. I, have peop- I need people in my life to convict me and to confront me with sin when I've stepped out of bounds. I need people to communicate with me when I am lost in my own mind and thoughts, when I am either depressed or discouraged. I need someone to encourage me, to strengthen me, give me me sight for things I don't see. It's not good that we live alone. On this missions trip for these students, one thing that sticks out to me is some of them are going to be sharing the gospel for the first time. Some of you are. Whether it be with little kids or adults in a park whether on the compound for YWAM, the community center, or out in a a place where you are unfamiliar. But you'll have to depend on each other, some of you for boldness. Some of you for how to communicate. Some of you are going to need to be encouragers as you're on this trip. But those three things still apply to us here this week, even though we're not going to Mexico. Some of you in here need people who are bold. Some of us in here need the help of communicating what we're feeling and thinking. Others of us simply need encouragement to continue to endure the trials that we're in. When the body of Christ embraces interdependence of one another, we truly are unified. So I'm not going to use the term interdependence because Scripture calls it unity. It calls it harmony. It calls it multiple people, vastly different, distinct from one another that God brings together. Think of the 12 disciples A ragtag bunch of people that would not associate with one another unless Jesus says, I think you can do what I can do. Come and follow me. And he unifies them. And they work together. So we may think that diversity threatens unity and the differences among us will separate us. That's not the case at all. That's not what God intended. Very simply, the threat to unity is sin. Sin threatens unity, not diversity. Diversity is not a threat to unity. It's the very thing that makes unity a a thing to cherish and to be encouraged by. See, Romans chapter 12 is a transition point in the book. Paul transitions from doctrinal and ethical developments to practical life application. The mind for Paul is his primary focus. It's what we start with. Our mind and the way we think is how we are, are transformed and renewed in this world. So our thoughts, feelings, and actions need to align with God's will, and the way we do that is to change the way we think and perceive this world. That is what leads to a transformed life. And that kind of life is characterized by some amazing things, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control. You know what we call that? The new creation. Last week, we looked at the new creation. Paul gives us these, there's only two options that we give to identify and distinguish between one another in this world. People who are old creation or new creation. The definition for the old creation is a life governed by sin and self-rule. The new creation replaces that with a life ruled by Christ's righteousness, leading to Christ's likeness. And so the doctrine of Paul, establishes in chapters 1 through 11, has positioned the church to receive a direct and actionable command. There needs to be transformation in our lives. 
And so when I say diversity, I don't just mean diversity for the sake of diversity. Yes, God created a, a panoply of things in, wor- in this world, and they are good. But when I say diversity, I mean within the bounds of orthodoxy that Paul has established in chapters 1 through 11. This is the bounds. Anything outside of these bounds in chapters 1 through 11, the doctrine he establishes, that's not what I'm referring to. But everything that does fall within it, there is a great degree of liberty Christ gets us and gives us as we worship and apply ourselves in the church. One thing to make note of is what was taking place inside of this Roman church. See, fractures have divided the church into many house gatherings scattered throughout the city. So just like Corinth, there were genuine rivalries, but specifically between Jews and Gentiles. The reason why this took place was in some time in the AD 40s, Emperor Claudius expelled all Jews from Rome. Every Jew had to leave the city. They were not permitted to be within the city walls. Yet during that exile, the church was entirely made of Gentiles. The way they practiced their faith, the way they operated, the way they went about worshiping the Lord, it was distinct from the Jewish customs that they were originally attached to. But when Claudius died, guess who was let back in? The Jewish Christians. And they came face to face with the Gentile Christians, and now they had to figure it out. The Jews wanted to exercise their faith in their way. The Gentiles had developed their faith in the way they exercised and worshiped in their way. And now there's friction in the church. They looked at one another and thought, that can't possibly be how God is worshiped. Does that sound familiar in any capacity? Have you experienced that, been threatened by it? Have you been to another church and felt like, I don't know if this is right. I don't feel comfortable in this. On a mission trip, I went to South Africa. And I was worshiping in a church, and that worship, they, and to those of you going to Mexico, your church service on Sunday will not be 45 minutes. I'll promise you right now. It'll be close to three hours. And that's common. I was in South Africa the first time I had this. I was at a church a little bit more charismatic than I grew up going to, and I was in a church service for three hours. By an hour and a half, I was itching, saying, we got to go. This, you're on my time now. Were they wrong for worshiping God for three hours in a service? I have just grown accustomed to the way in which I do it, and now I'm asserting that it's somehow better. It's not. So this approach of what threatens the unity of the church, it's sin. But the value and the ethic of unity is throughout Scripture. Paul will say this in Philippians 2, verse 2. It says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Diversity has always been a part of God's plan. Think back to creation. Did God create one tree, one beast of the field, one bird of the air, or one creepy thing that crawls on the earth? (laughs) No, far from it. We're still discovering new plants and animals to this day. We are discovering what God has declared very good. Diversity is very good. Then why are we uncomfortable with it? Why does it cause so many problems? Why does it create fractions and fissures inside of a body that we all proclaim the same God? We receive the same baptism. We profess the same faith. Well, the answer is sin. Sin has corrupted our natural ability to recognize and understand God's purpose for diversity. It's the sin of pride that obscures our vision of one another specifically. God has blessed us with a variety of giftings within this church alone, let alone the universal church. Do we see the need for all these gifts? See, the good news of the gospel renews our mind to to recognize the needs that are around us and how each one of us are crafted and gifted to meet those needs, specifically for one another. We're members of one another. 
let us figure out how we can do this. The best way for us to recognize the beauty of the unity and, and diversity that God's given us is to, to, to require sensible thinking about one another. Unity requires sensible thinking about one another. Romans chapter 12, verses 3, first, first two parts of verse 3 says, For by grace given to me, I tell everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he should think. Instead, think sensibly. The grace Paul received is his calling as an apostle, capital A apostle, to deliver and establish the good news in churches throughout the world. And so God chose him as the final authority for this Roman church's reconciliation. Now, remember, Paul has never met these people. He's never met them face to face. He, face to face. he knows them. He knows of their trials, and now he's writing to them. This is God's message to this church. But he's speaking through Paul. So when he says, for, the, by, for by the grace given to me, do you know what he's kind of saying? Hey, Roman church, this is where the discussion ends. We're not going to discuss this anymore. I'm establishing the higher ethic that you should all be pursuing. It's polite, but it's certainly authoritative. And it requires a change. See, Paul warns the church of the sin of exaggerated self-esteem. The sin that threatens unity is exaggerated self-esteem. A bloated view of ourselves. What's really making the case is that there's this overall principle, we need to unite all these little scattered congregations throughout the city, but this also applies to us as individuals within each of these churches. No one is better than anyone else. See, Jews believe their practices and rituals were superior, and the Gentiles did vice versa. Their expression of faith was proper, while the others was not. These things were superficial to Paul. The value and the ethic of unity was what he was trying to present to them. So a lofty view of self has no place within the body of Christ. Despite Paul's best efforts, we can read of an extreme example of this taking place 1,100 years later. Pope Innocent III, writing about the papal office, writes about his, the, the church's expectation of him. This is what he writes. The successor of Peter is the vicar of Christ. He has been established as the mediator, a mediator, make that clear, a mediator between God and man. Below God, but beyond man. Less than God, but more than man. Who shall judge all and be judged by no one. Oh my gosh. Could you imagine the dressing down he got upon death? Who are you, old man, that you should speak to this? Now, I don't think anybody in here is guilty of writing or saying something like that. That's extreme. That is a lofty view of self. That's exactly what Paul is speaking out against. You are not to think this highly of yourself. This is not who you are. And yet we're all guilty of this sin in one way or another, aren't we? In some way or another, some of us have thought of ourselves better than each other. We've expressed superiority. We've undermined a person's gifting. We've discredited them because of their, where they came from. We've ex excluded a person based on their gifting or their expectations. We are guilty of this sin. I'm guilty of this sin. I wrestle with it all the time. As a pastor in a church, growing up in America, we, the air we breathe is, is a competitive nature. We compete with everyone. In my sin, in my flesh, I compete as a pastor against the other churches in town. I have to drag that desire into the light and say, who am I? I'm but an under-shepherd, and everyone else is an under-shepherd. So what does Paul say to us in this moment? In order for us to drag that into the light, what do we have to do? We have to think sensibly. 
Well, what does that mean? Jewish historian Josephus used the same Greek word, and he describes it kind of in two ways. You can go either way with it. Someone who thinks sensibly excels in intelligence or excels in understanding. To think sensibly is to excel in understanding. Well, what are we trying to understand? One another. We're trying to understand and think sensibly how does their gifting and unique story and the way they were shaped benefit this church and build up this church in the image and likeness of Christ. See, our divisions inside the church exist because we choose ignorance over intelligence. We choose not to know. We would rather be comfortable with a story and an opinion rather than a fact and searching it out. That takes work. But ultimately, it's not just looking at another person. It's grasping what God intended in the first place. We don't ultimately understand what God means when he says diversity is very good. Therefore, we need to cherish God's diversity of gifts. Unity in the church cherishes God's diversity of gifts. Read with me the last part of 3 and through 5. For God has distributed a measure of faith to each one. Now, as we have many parts in one body, and all the parts do not have the same function, in the same way, we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. This first part, at the end of verse 3, it says, God has distributed a measure of faith to each person. It may not be this verse specifically, but other verses have been used to describe the giftings that we received are based upon the faith that we have. The greater the faith I have, the more God's going to give me in this earn it type mentality. And so the greater the faith, the better the reward. That is not Paul's opinion. I want to undermine that point and that notion. You are not playing a part in this equation for three reasons. First, Paul has received his gift. Remember this gift of grace that I received? Paul didn't earn it. In fact, he was fighting against it. He didn't want to be an apostle. God made him an apostle despite his best efforts. Next, Paul advocated for less of self, not more. Paul's not advocating for you to create an equation in which you're going to get this great gifting and be really useful in the church. That's not his priority. And last, God is the agent acting, not individuals. So if there's any notion in here that there's some equation that you have to fill out in order to receive a, a greater gift or better reward or better blessing inside the church, let me undermine that right now with these three things. Paul is not establishing our importance. We need to think humbly about ourselves. So then I have to ask, why does he use the word faith and not gifts? God has distributed a measure of faith to each one. Why doesn't he say a measure of gifts? Because he's going to say that in a bit. Why here? Why attach gifts and faith together? Well, very clearly, gifts are used in association with faith. Gifts are used in association with faith. Without faith, our gifts really just become talents. We just become good at doing something. Let me give you a little bit of an example and undermine this, or, um, underline this for you. Everything we do in life requires an element of faith. When you drove here this morning, you assumed your car would start, but did you know it with certainty? When you sat down in this chair, did you know it would hold you, or you assumed with a great deal of certainty? Did you know for sure? Every aspect of life requires faith. God has baked the requirement of faith into everything we do. It's that way from the simple to the complex, and that includes the use of our spiritual gifts, the way in which we build up the church. I don't know the outcome of this sermon in your life. I prepare it thinking I know, expecting I know, but ultimately I trust God that he will use it, not me. 
For the ushers and greeters welcoming people in, they in faith welcomed you in, said good morning, not knowing your story, not knowing what happened this week. The worship team led worship this morning, not knowing anybody in here where the state of their heart is or the desire of their heart is, but they led worship all the same because they have faith in God for the expression and the use of their gift that in some way, shape, or form, the Lord will build up this church into the image of Christ. That's why faith is used. We cannot distinguish gifts and faith. We use our gifts in faith. And we need sensible thinking to see how each part of the body makes a complete whole. So not only do I need to have faith in the gift that I've been given, I need to have faith that the gift that you've been given is what's best for me. And so Paul uses the term throughout Scripture in many different ways that we are the body of Christ. This metaphor in reference to being the body is not uncommon in the ancient world. Caesar was seen as the head of the empire, and the people were the body. It's been used of the Greco-Roman states as well, but where Paul takes a departure in relationship to how it was most commonly used is he now gives the members of the body a responsibility and a greater blessing, a greater affirmation that you serve a part of the worship, that without you, worship doesn't happen. In religious ceremonies in the ancient world, there was the priests and the laity, the people who performed the rituals and those who just participated. Paul is what, what he's communicating to the whole church now. You all participate in the worship of God and the, ex, um, the expression of worship to God for what he's given us. Every unique person and individual serves as a worshiper. And without you using your gifts, our worship is stunted. And so each and every men, member is essential for the body to worship God. I know the tech team only gets noticed when something goes wrong. They don't exist, but your worship this morning, tech team, was to ensure that the sound, the sound and visuals help people learn. All teachers and leaders this morning, whether it's a class or children's ministry, your worship this morning was guiding adults and kids through the scriptures. Mercy team members, your worship this week was to assist anybody in financial need and bless them. Worship team, your worship was leading us in worship. Anyone gifted with the gift of leadership was to make decisions. Anybody with the gift of discernment was to help recognize places in which we're missing and need to address. Without our gifts deployed in the body, our worship is stunted. And you don't need a title to worship. You don't need a title to use your gift. Sure, there's many titles that you can have from a, a, a community group leader to a kids ministry leader to a nursery worker, but many of you here in, in here have the gift of, gift of hospitality. On a Sunday morning, you make this place feel warm. You give hugs and you welcome people. You don't need a title for that, but you're using your gift. Your worship is allowing other people to make this place feel like their home. And I can go on with the list. See, every list that Paul uh, puts together in Scripture, including Peter, there, no list is exhaustive. There's no finite list of what the gifts are. There's some high-level ones that he describes again and again that we recognize kind of, there are tears and things fall underneath that. But we're too easily tempted in some ways to assume that we can't serve or we haven't been gifted or our gift isn't worth exercising in this church. Let me remove that expectation from you this morning. That idea that our gifts are somehow inferior to another's, I think that is also a sin of self-pity. And self-pity is just another form of pride. It's not the opposite of it. Self-pity is the inability to think highly of oneself. 
best way I've seen this and experienced it in my own life is Kelsey and I have a, a great friend. She's a women's ministry, or she's a children's ministry director in Boise, but her and I grew, to, grew up, went to church together. My parents and her parents are our best friends. She was Kelsey's small group leader. One of her gifts is to give gifts. She is the best gift giver I know. She celebrates people better than anybody. I love when my birthday comes around. Like, I've come to expect a present from Darcy, and it's spot on. I would have never thought of it. I'm like, oh, I like this. This is awesome. And so much so, I've been around it in other churches, and she's, um, she's been in our life so long, I've thought, I wish I could give gifts like her. I wish I had that gift. I would like to do that. But then I stop and think about it. I really don't want that gift. <laughs> do you know what I want? I just want what other people say about Darcy for people to say about me. Because if I really wanted to give gifts, that's just a priority. I just need to change my priority of how I celebrate people. See, I think oftentimes when we look at others and say, I wish I had that gift, it's a little bit of what I just described. I just want what they have. We don't have faith in God and how he's gifted us. How he's given us an ability to build up this church. We are interdependent upon one another. I need your gifts in my life because I can't and I don't have those gifts. And vice versa. The body of Christ works in such a way that we need to trust God for how we've been gifted and trust God how he has gifted others. That's what's best. We need to cherish the gifts that surround us. Our gifts are different for a reason. We are blessed and built up by others in ways we can't do ourselves. Praise God for that. I don't have to rely on myself to do all of the things I need in my life. I have a body of believers surrounding me to do so. We are members of one another. So what has God done? Ultimately this. God has created organic uni unity with purposeful diversity to meet every need of life. Underline that word purposeful. God didn't just scatter seeds and just give you a gift like I'm just going to give you this gift. It is purposeful. God knows who's a part of this church. Things will come to me and like, hey, what, hey what's, what's needed in the church? What do you need to do? My response to that question is always, how are you gifted? What's your gift? What your gift will help me determine what the need is. What is your gift? But unity is only real when our gifts are actually deployed. Unity necessitates our, our gifts are deployed. Look how he finishes in verses 6, 7, and 8. According to the grace given to us, we have received gifts. If prophecy, using, using, use it according to the portion of one's faith. If service, use it in service. If teaching, in teaching. If exhorting, in exhortation. Giving, with generosity. Leading, with diligence. Showing mercy, with cheerfulness. See, these lists that Paul puts in Scripture, like I said, they're not exhaustive. But this one's unique, and then there's an additional description behind each gift. So when he says, if prophecy, he gives a, a condition, using it in according to the por proportion of one's faith. Gosh, that's hard. If service, use it in service. Teaching and teaching, and the list goes on. Why does he add that? What's the impetus? What's the reason for doing so? Because he actually wants the church to use their gifts. He expects us to use our gifts. He doesn't expect us to sit on the sidelines and when it's, when it's convenient, the expectations of activity in the body, when we know our gifts, we deploy our gifts. But that raises a really big question. Do you know your gift? And if you know it, how do you deploy it? What are some ways? And so to get very practical with us this morning, 
I want to walk through three things I want you to consider when the idea of how do I deploy my gifts. First thing we need to do is recognize that we discover our gifts through the church. We discover our gifts through the church. There's no outside circumstances. There's no formula. Yes, tests are good. I'm sure anybody in here taken a spiritual gifts test before? I've taken a few. I get the same three every time. That doesn't mean a gift is perfect or accurate. It's just a great place to start. Where you discover and learn your gift is in the body of Christ. What other people see and through prayer, the Spirit is going to confirm in you. So if you want to discover your gift, you can't do it apart from serving in the church. You may have an idea, you may have an assumption, but until you start serving in the church, you won't know for sure. And so there's some questions I wanna, want you to ask yourself in preparation for involving yourself in the life of, life of the church to help focus and narrow your decision-making down. Where could I possibly serve and in what way I'm possibly gifted? So the first question is, what part of church life do you find yourself concerned the most with and why? What area of the church do you find yourself thinking about recognizing the most? There might be a reason for that. Second, how have you served in the past? And which of them filled you up and what drained you? What's your past experience? The filling up doesn't mean you're not exhausted. It just means, yet yeah, I like that. There, w- there was joy in this. I was thankful for it, not, not exhaustion. Now, if, you were to a- if the church were to ask me, I need you to be the youth pastor for, the, for uh, high school, I would say, no, probably not, hard pass. I need you to lead junior high ministry, I'll give you six months, no questions asked. I love junior hires, middle school age. They're the best. I've experienced that. I will, I, sorry, high schoolers. I don't know what happened. I just, I can make a decision now. I know it drains me and fills me up. Okay. Next question. What have others said about where you could, could, where you could serve? What have others said? What have they said about you? Have they given you an idea, a hint, a direction? That's what we do in the church. And last, who would you like to serve with? There's always been people in my life inside church that I recognize how they serve and how they are gifted. It's kind of like the way I am in some ways, and I want to be around them. I want to learn and do what they do. I'm a pastor because someone took me out to lunch and said, I think you, you could be in ministry. Have you considered it? And from 18 on, I've been preaching and teaching. I, I got lucky. I recognize that. Someone took me under their wing and gave me a direction and said, go fly, and I fell to the ground. I didn't fly right away. <laughs> Far from it. And yet here I am, because I know after I'm done preaching, there's joy has filled my heart, which brings us to the second recognition of how we develop our gifts or how we recognize our gifts is that our, we develop our gifts while we use them. We know that I know my gift, not because of the excellence in which I use my gift in any capacity, but by the joy I receive when I use it. Make no doubt, just because you have a gift doesn't mean you're awesome at it right away. There's ways in which we have to grow and develop. People need to speak into my life. On tomorrow morning, I'm going to hear about what I did in this sermon. And my chicken arms. I always do chicken arms. I need to put them down. We we excel at things. Now I'm self-conscious. Here we go. T-Rex arms, not chicken arms, T-Rex arms. Now you know it. but we're going to develop our gifts together, not in isolation. Excellent comes second. 
as God hones our gifts in amongst the church, but first and foremost, our joy comes from using them. Last, we help others discover and develop their gifts. What others have done for us, we turn around and do the very same thing. But this is also an act, uh, affirmation to anyone in here who does know their gifts. There is a responsibility placed upon you to help others discover theirs. This isn't just a responsibility of pastors and elders or, or high-level leaders to do this. Everyone can. You can be an encourager and shaper and let someone else know, I think you're gifted in preaching or teaching or prayer or encouragement or hospitality. That's how far you can go. That's where you can start. We look for others around us that we can equip and deploy alongside of us. On our website, there's underneath the ministries, there's a webpage that says start serving. If you're in isolation or don't quite know anybody, I would say start there. You can take a test, you can fill out a form, answer these questions that I just put in front of you here, and that gives us a good direction of how we can deploy you in this church. But again, it may not be leading a class in something official. It may just be an affirmation. This is how you serve Christ Community Church. This is how you build up the body. This is how we are interdependent upon one another. See, I'm excited for the students to go on this mission trip because I believe for some of you, if you're in here or not, you're going to discover and recognize your gift for the very first time. You otherwise wouldn't have known it. But under the pressure and the, the, the tense situation that you'll be in, you'll recognize I have to depend on those people around me. And so I hope and encourage this church to pray. First, for the students that are going, not just on the mission trip, but that they recognize how the Lord will use them to build up his church when they come back home. Not just that we have a lot and, and, and people in Mexico have little. I don't want them to come home with that story. I want them to come home. I know how God has called me to build up his church. I would love for that. Would you pray with that with me this week? Because I'm going to be doing that. But next, I would also love for you to pray and consider how are you to build up this church this week at the same time that they're going to be serving. There is, there is a depleted unity in this church when the gifts are not deployed. There is a stunted growth and ability to worship God and bring him honor and glory in Idaho Falls when the gifts are not being used. Some of you, I would love for you to get off the bench and we'll help you do that. But some of us in here also need to confess our pride and arrogance. To confess before the Lord that I have thought too highly of myself. Lord, give me a right heart to see how I am dependent upon others to fulfill the needs in this life. For I know it's you through them. Will you pray with me? Our Lord and our God, I pray that you give us eyes to see and ears to hear how you can lead us to be a church that brings you glory. For we are a new creation and we must be transformed. So renew our minds this morning with the truth that we are interdependent upon one another, that we are not self-reliant. And to do so and to pursue that kind of life is to pursue destruction in a life that is passing away. So Lord, equip this church to recognize their gifts. I pray that you give them a measure of insight into their own life of how they can serve and build up this church. And for those who are currently serving, God, will you humble our hearts to receive those who want to glorify you with how you've been gifted. So Lord, thank you and help us to praise your name in unity this morning. For you are God and we thank you that you're coming to get us one day. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.